Hi, this is Mark Rabin. Before the episode, let me quickly tell you about my new book. It's titled Measures of Success. It's a book that will help you react less to your performance metrics, every up and down in those. It'll help you lead better. It'll help you improve more. So you can learn more about the book by going to www.measuresofsuccessbook.com or you can search Amazon. It's available as a print book, a Kindle book. It's available through Apple Books. I hope you'll check it out. Hi, this is Mark Raven. If you like this podcast, you might realize I have a blog, leanblog.org. Did you also know that I have another podcast called Lean Blog Audio? And there I basically, occasionally, or as often as I can, I read audiobook style versions of blog posts. So you can go to leanblog.org slash audio or search in your favorite podcast place for Lean Blog Audio. I hope that'll give you something else uh, that's food for thought, something else to help you in your lean journey. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 274 of the podcast. It's February 1st, 2017. My guest today is Jay Arthur, author of the book Lean Six Sigma for Hospitals, Improving Patient Safety, Patient Flow, and the Bottom Line, second edition. Now, to me, Lean Sigma is often a controversial topic. Not because there's anything wrong with Six Sigma. Six Sigma methods can be very compatible with a lean culture. But Lean Sigma books and trainers, uh, including Jay, paint a picture that says lean is only about speed or efficiency and that Six Sigma is the method to improve quality. Um, in, in Jay's otherwise excellent book, he unfortunately says that lean is about addressing all of the types of waste except for the waste of defects and that Six Sigma is used to address defects. I find that just sort of um, silly because the types of waste come from lean in the Toyota production system. Lean is, of course, a quality method. It's about flow and quality. They go hand in hand. Lean methods and mindsets can very directly improve quality, as can Six Sigma. So I, I don't disagree that lean and Six Sigma can be compatible. I just don't like um, the picture that says uh, lean is only about speed or cost or efficiency. So I disagree with Jay on that point. Um, I challenge him about that a bit in the podcast, but there are many good points in his book uh, about improving safety and flow, not overcomplicating lean or Six Sigma. And you know, I agree the goal is to get results and develop people at the same time. So if you'd like to see more about the book, some videos with Jay, he does have a lot of uh, free material online. You can find links to all of that um, at leanblog.org slash 274. Thanks for listening. Jay, hi. Thank you for being a guest and joining us on the podcast today. Hey, thanks for uh, having me on. Start off, you know, just kind of the basics. If you can introduce yourself uh, for the listeners and, and and tell everyone a little bit about your career and, and you know, in particular, yeah, how did you first get involved in uh, process improvement, quality, whatever terms you would use? Sure. Well, I'm Jay Arthur, author of Lean Six Sigma for Hospitals and the QI Macros for Excel, which is a tool to do all the charts and graphs you need. Um, and I, I got started, uh, I spent 21 years in the phone company building software and everything from mainframes to mini computers to microcomputers. 
And then in 1990, our VP of operations, IT operations, said, I'm going to get into this total quality improvement game and hired Florida Power and Light to come in and train us in, in how to do TQM. And then out of that, um, I became a, a team leader and an instructor, and we started lots of teams. And after about a year, um, we discovered that out of 100 teams, only about three had succeeded. I said, wait, this was some of the best training I've ever had. What is wrong? And so I started to try and figure that out. And over the next five years, I worked in, in various locations on various projects. But in the last couple of years, I got involved with finance, and uh, we, we started looking at um, postage costs had gone up $20 million. Well, we did a little analysis and found out that, gee, it was because we were adding new uh, telephone companies onto our bill, and that was increasing postage costs. How do we fix that? And so we had led a team that saved $20 million in, in postage and $16 million in adjustments. And then in 1995, our leadership team said, wait, we're not getting any return out of investment out of this, <laughs> out of this uh, total quality department. So they shut us all down. Mm. Uh, the VP of finance called me up and said, hey, do you want to work for me? And I said, well, I think I want to go out on my own. So in December of, 19, of 1995, I left, went out on my own, started doing consulting. And then I uh, got into the whole game, and because I was a geek, I started figuring out how to make Excel draw the charts I needed to be able to do uh, process improvement. So mm -hmm. but that's kind of the speed speed yeah. story. Well, sure, and we, we can kind of delve a little deeper into some of that. You mentioned Florida Power and Light. Part of my geekiness, um, you know, kind of early exposure in my career to, uh, to Dr. Deming, Florida Power and Light was uh, was pretty famous for winning the Deming Prize, which is probably why right. that was the credential that led to them being brought in to work with you. Mm -hmm. um, did how much they were they were still applying? Oh, okay. they hadn't won it. it, we, it he got them in in '89. I think they won in '90. Okay. Um, but what you mentioned there, a couple of things you mentioned. I mean, it sound I think very familiar. You know, here. Uh, year 2016 end of the year when we're when we're talking um you know somebody canceling a tqm program because they weren't seeing an roi from it I, i've got a, a book on my shelf um uh, i think it was called why tqm failed and what you can do about it and and you know that that was uh, a fairly common problem I and mean, we see similar things you know happening with lean i see hospital systems canceling you know getting rid of their quote-unquote lean department which maybe that's part right. of the problem if lean is a department but what, what are some of your thoughts around you know that that failure rate what what went wrong are there are there common themes that are still happening today um well you know uh, you know I, I saw michael george from the george group talk about after you left the, the group um one company spent four million dollars with his company and had no bottom line improvement wait how is that possible <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, you think right? most organizations have so much low-hanging fruit? Uh, well, problems the problem is the, the problem is everybody thinks that, but all the low-hanging fruit has been plucked. I call it invisible low-hanging fruit. Nobody knows how to find invisible low-hanging fruit in an organization because it's buried in data sets that are spread all over the corporation. But we can talk about that in a minute. But but here's what I think happens. Um, you know, in, in our phone company. They got all uh, addicted to um, process mapping. Hmm. Well, mapping these archaic processes in the phone company, well, that was stupid. I mean, we, we covered 
conference rooms, ginormous walls with, with flowcharts of how terrible it all was. But did we actually go out and start to say, what specific things do we need to fix? Mm. You know, and I come back to Duran all the time, vital few, trivial many. Right. And we were, uh, the leadership guy was, I mean, he was just hot to trot on process of mapping everything. But I was very much interested in, well, what can we fix? You know, so half the calls to the company were for repair. I wanted to work on repair. Well, no, we don't, we don't want you working on repair, you know. <laughs> so it's, uh, I, I don't know what it is, but there seems to be a gap. And the other thing we did, too, I think, was had that whole model where you let the team choose the problem. Uh, and I think that's dumb. I think you should let the leadership team go, where's the pain? Let's go, let's go get some data. Let's go figure out how to fix that. Uh, and the other thing I see in, uh, in healthcare is every couple of years they pick up performance improvement and they drop it and pick it up, mm -hmm. put it down, pick it up, put it down. And the observation that I see is people go out there and I see a lot of uh, people I talk to in healthcare. They were trained by people who are manufacturing Six Sigma or manufacturing lean people. They are not healthcare lean people, right? And the amount of tools that you need in a healthcare environment are, are very small compared to what you might need if you wanted to go out and optimize a, a plant that makes carburetors, right? And so what happens is they, they have a disconnect about how to translate what they're being told or taught into how do I do that here? Right. right, And that's kind of the, the thing I've been chasing for a long time. And, and the other thing that happens, and I keep hearing this over and over again, is, well, we made this tremendous performance improvement in the emergency department. You know, and throughput was really good for about six months, and then it fell off and went away. Right. Or we did it here, or we did it there. We improved lab turnaround times, and then it fell off. I essentially believe that nobody is doing the C in DMAIC control, and putting in a control system to say, you know, let, let's make this thing, uh, let's weave it into the very fabric of how we do business and, and, and make that the way we do, we do things and put some control charts on it so we make sure it stays. Um, it, was, it was interesting, there was a recent article in the HBR where they talked about the great training robbery. And they said in, in the country, you know, U.S., we spend $160 billion or something on training, and most of it's wasted because right. people go to class and learn all this stuff, and then they go back and keep doing what they've always done. <laughs> and, and I see a lot of that as well. And so you wonder why things die. Uh, I think it's because we're not uh, somehow transferring the, the love of improvement or something. I, I don't know where it is, well, uh, but I keep, I keep trying to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the factors, um, I mean, I think you're right to bring up the point of, you know, training people, po identifying waste, uh, th that that is only so helpful. And, and if you don't allow people to go actually fix anything, if you don't prioritize improvements, if you don't um, sustain the improvements, a lot of that can be a waste. I, I think sometimes, and this is a problem going back to the Deming days, we're spending tons of money training the wrong people that we want to send all our frontline staff and managers and and the executives don't learn anything about these new approaches the management philosophy of of, of lean or management aspects of six sigma and you have people running around using tools and 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 that can only take an organization so far i'm sure that was i mean that was part of the story of tqm failures and that book from 20 25 years ago saying tqm usually failed because the executives didn't change they didn't get involved well, you know, I, I have this theory, 
because if, as I've looked at a lot of healthcare organizations, the the new CEO comes in and either takes Lean and Six Sigma out or puts it in, mm-hmm. and they change they change about every three years. Uh, and so there, there's been a whole lot of study about how cultures adopt, adapt, and, and reject change, and over 50 years of study on this. And what they found is if the leadership team uh, drives it, it invokes what's called the Stalinist paradox. Only half of the time will it work, hmm. right? And so <clears throat> I believe that if we... The other thing they found is that if you want a culture to adopt a change, you need to get at least 4% making improvements. Right. And at that level, it'll stick. At about 20%, it'll reach a critical mass and take off. And it doesn't matter who the leadership team is. It is the informal leadership team inside the, mm. that company, that hospital, whatever, that is going to sustain the change. Um, you know, I like to believe, you know, I'd love to have great leaders, you know, do this. But uh, my observation is that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and one other thing I want to you know, come back to, I mean, you, you bring up the idea of you know, solving Problems that matter. You mentioned Duran. I mean, we hear the same thing from uh, Taiichi Ono in the, the Toyota literature. He talks about solving the right. most pressing needs right. in an organization. John Shook at LEI talks about that a lot today. And I mean, I, I think there's a balance. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts here that um, there's something to be said for getting people participating. And, right. and, and and getting people, you know, if they work on something they choose, they're going to be enthusiastic about it. You right. get closer to that 20%. But at the same time, yeah, we've, if, if there's some big, huge pressing need, like people are waiting hours and hours in the emergency room to see a doctor or they're waiting for days to get a bed, like we really should prioritize something like that, I think. Yeah, well, you would think so, you know. But it, so here's the bad news. Uh, I believe healthcare has been admiring the problem, and I call it admiring. All right. So, according to Press Ganey, who tracks all this junk, uh, length of stay in emergency departments is four hours, unchanged for a decade. Yeah, unchanged. Uh, one study in uh, Minnesota found that uh, never events, things that should never happen, right, essentially were unchanged for the last decade. Right. The, the big report in 1999 to Errors right. Human, the came out and said, oh, we kill 100,000 people a year unnecessarily, and it's probably about five times that, actually. Um, and, but the problem is we haven't seen the progress, except in a few exemplar uh, hotel systems around this country, right? And so and most people are admiring the problem. And so how do we get uh, on board? And I, I believe, you know, Medicare is forcing uh, changes through payment. That's one thing. I think we're seeing a, a starting shift from it used to be a physician-centric uh, model where everything was around designed around making the physician efficient, which is silly because when you make the patient efficient, the physician does lots more good stuff, right? Um, and so we're seeing a slow shift towards a patient-centric model. Uh, in the exemplar hospitals and not so much in other places. And so it's this horrifically slow transformation. Right. And because half the hospitals are in some sort of financial problem, I believe that somebody offshore is going to figure out a model that will drive costs down, deliver great quality of service, and come in and just buy up hospitals, take them over, and teach them how to run. <laughs> and, and I think they're going to force it down people's throat, and I think that will be an ugly day for healthcare. but I think it's coming. 
Yeah. Well, and you, know, you talk about these problems not not getting solved. I mean, it's like it would lead to one of two conclusions that the problem can't be solved or, or people just don't want to solve it. And like you said, there are exemplars that disprove the notion that these problems are unsolvable. So, uh, you know, that 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 could... solvable. Yeah, they every, are, every they are, they are solvable. solvable. Yeah. You know, in 2004, Robert Wood Johnson Hospital out in New Jersey won the Baldrige Award. And in their emergency department, they, they set a goal. They said, you're going to see a, a nurse in 15 minutes, a doctor in 30 minutes, or your visit is free. Hmm. Guess what? They didn't give away any money, <laughs> um, or very little money, all right? And then the other thing that happened was, you know, every the school mom figured out that they could get their kid in and out of there because they would discharge patients in 38 minutes. Not four hours, mm-hmm. 38 minutes, or admit them in 90 minutes. Now, what that did was everybody figured out, I can go there and get my kid in and out or whoever it is in and out in a very timely fashion. And I was talking to some people from, from there a few years ago, and they said, yeah, we had to add another wing on the hospital because there was so much volume mm. coming through the emergency department. <laughs> right. We needed a whole new wing to, to, run, to, to meet the need, right? So we yeah. didn't have to transport people to other hospitals. So this, you know, that's lean. That is lean at warp speed driving improvements, growing profitability. I yeah. mean, it's just amazing. Well, and that's a far more more positive, less dysfunctional approach than cost-cutting, whether people are using Lean or Six Sigma or any of those approaches for cost-cutting. I, I hear a lot of times people talk about Six Sigma, and again, you know, this is not my area of expertise, but you know, they, they talk about cost, 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 cost. And I say, wait a minute, I, I, I thought this was supposed to be a quality improvement methodology and it, it's gotten hijacked or, or bastardized in in some way uh, what, what, what are some of your thoughts uh, any thoughts on that idea well my observation is um, every company according to Duran you know throws away 25 to 30 percent of their uh, revenue fixing stuff that shouldn't be broken and trashing stuff that can't be fixed and the same is true in healthcare you know, we estimate that there's uh, out of the $2.9 trillion we spend on health care that a trillion dollars is for waste and rework. That's a lot. You know, and $250 billion of that is for unnecessary tests and treatments. Mm-hmm. Right? That's overproduction. That's a plain old lean overproduction thing. Yep. Right? And so there's this huge opportunity. If we, if, you know, there were estimates that said if we cut that by 20%, it would pay for Obamacare. If we cut it by 80%, it would clear the national debt. Hmm. Wait, why aren't we on this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and I believe I believe healthcare, if they really just jumped on it, could make dramatic improvement in 18 to 24 months. And so, you know, my observation is when you cut, um, when you reduce your defects, mistakes, errors, you know, time to get things done. Delay, defects, and deviation, I say those are the three silent killers of productivity and profitability. All of a sudden, all more, a lot more money falls to the bottom line because you cannot tell in a hospital if that patient is in a bed because we made a medical mistake and we're not getting paid for them or they're just in a bed and we're being paid for them. Yeah. Well, you I cannot think, you know, tell. I'm sorry? You cannot tell which one they are. Yeah. Well, and I think you know, there's a huge difference between I think a process improvement approach uh, that that eliminates waste, improves flow, which is sort of you know it's different than efficiency. Um, that that leads to financial gain as opposed to I mean the, the the common playbook in healthcare 
before lean, without lean has just been stupid cost cutting, laying people off, cutting services, um, you know, hoping that if we fire a bunch of people, those who are left will somehow figure out how to get the job done. And, and I just don't see that as a, a good path to productivity, yet alone quality, safety, patient satisfaction. Yeah, but, but we see that across the board, whether it's in healthcare or not. Yeah. Right? When, when times get bad, we just take out the ax. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, you know, to your point, what if we used lean to simplify and streamline so we were wicked fast? And the byproduct of being wicked fast is you don't have a chance to make a mistake, right? Because you never set the patient down. Right. They ne- you, you know, my, my wife's aunt, she took her in and she, had, she fell and had to have a CAT scan. She had a CAT scan. They had a shift change. And, and after the shift change, the nurse came in and said, here, drink this contrast. And my wife said, why, why are we doing that? Yeah. And, and she said, well, she has to have a CAT scan. And my wife said, no, she's had a CAT <laughs> scan. We're not doing that again. Well, no, she hasn't. Yes, she has. Go check it out. Yeah. You know, but without somebody uh, running the the game there, there's been another cat scan, which have been ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> that's the great thing. So if we use lean to simplify and streamline, and then we use Six Sigma to optimize to find the things you can't find um, necessarily through a, a lean approach, things that are more that invisible, low hanging fruit, then. You know, we can start to really chop away at the that cost, and maybe we could cut costs by 25%, 30%. And what would that do for your bottom line? Right. right? It's not just random axe cutting, right? We're, we're finding exactly where to fix stuff. Yeah, and, and so let's talk a little bit more about uh, Lean and Six Sigma and, and combining methodologies. I, mean, I think the way you articulated that is something I, I, I would agree with, that uh, we can use lean to improve flow, improve processes, engage people. There, there are some problems that require deeper statistical analysis, and I, I don't deny the usefulness of Six Sigma or statistics. Um, the, the one thing, though, that um, I, I, I disagree with, um, and, and Michael George, who you mentioned earlier, you know, the cover of his book and you know, in the book talked about you know, lean speed and Six Sigma quality. Um, in, in, in your books, Lean Six Sigma for Hospitals, you know, you, you, you say the same thing that lean will reduce these six types of waste and Six Sigma will help you reduce defects. And I, you know, I'm, I'm just curious your, your perspective on that because wh- the way I would see it is that lean and the Toyota production system is about, you know, flow and quality. Like you said, they go hand in hand, lean, has a lot of approaches that would help reduce defects. Um, I, what can you kind of tell me? You know the story behind uh, what, why why you say that in your book. Sure. Well, um, you know one of one of the things is I think some sometimes people get their undies in a bunch about the rigor of either a lean or a six sigma, and, and I'm I'm less of a purist and more of a realist, right? So how do we get uh, people on board with things? So in in healthcare, you know, it's not like a manufacturing uh, factory floor, right? It is clinicians working with patients, and their big problem is the gaps between the clinician uh, being with a patient and the next step in their process, uh, right? So one of the great things about lean is if you if you collapse those delays, right, then you don't have a chance to make a mistake. You don't have a chance to do the test over again. You don't have a chance to, to miss a step in your process. And so 
lean as a result of doing re- removing all those other six wastes, guess what? You get phenomenal improvements in quality. No doubt about it. But you're not going at it directly. You're, I, my observation is you're going at it indirectly. But right? I, I think you're doing both with lean. I mean, there, there is that effect you said of better flow leads to better quality. But there are also the methodologies around um, uh, root cause problem solving and uh, lean problem solving that, that are directly used to address many quality problems and sources of defects, which then lead to improved flow. And, you know, even root cause analysis is like in the middle of Six Sigma. So how do we separate those two apart? And what, I, what I'm trying to do is you've got to remember, in healthcare, these people aren't, you know, long-term dipped in lean and Six Sigma. Most of them may have heard of it, may not have heard of it, right? Or they've been dipped in process improvement. Or the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, uh, which just met last week, I was there at the, the concert, conference, you know, they have improvement advisor training, which is sort of a, their take on lean and Six Sigma training. And so how do we pair those out? I'm not trying to make them one right and one wrong. What I'm trying to do is offer to the people that I'm talking to um, what, what tool is, you know, vital for you to use, right? So for me in healthcare, if you want to reduce your cycle time and reduce defects, get the value stream map and a spaghetti diagram and go to work, mm-hmm. right? And, and here's the deal. Every year I go to this conference. I've been going to the IHI, the Health Improvement Conference, uh, for 10 years, 11, 12 years. And every year I look through all the poster presentations. And guess what? There, this year there were no value stream maps. There were no spaghetti diagrams. There were some, a few flow charts. And you know what the vast majority of, of them had as charts? They had bar charts and line charts. Like three-quarters of all the charts are bar, line, and pie charts drawn in Microsoft Excel. Mm-hmm. There's no control charts. There's no Pareto charts. I mean, not quite. But, I mean, but a very low proportion. And um, it was very funny. Don Berwick, who was the, the head of the IHI right. back in 2006 when I saw him, said, hey, I want you guys to pledge allegiance to science and evidence. Mm-hmm. And then last year at the closing keynote, I heard him kind of sadly, you know, just kind of with dismay go, mm-hmm. I've been asking you guys for 10 friggin' years right. to pay, <laughs> pay attention to science and evidence, and I don't see it. Right? So I'm going to go back to how do, we, how do we make this, how do we simple this up enough that our audience can grab hold of it and run with it? And I can tell you when I go in and train uh, a group of nurses or something and I get them to do a value stream map or get them to do a spaghetti diagram, they figure out how to cut travel time Mm -hmm. in their nursing unit in like an hour. Right. And if they cut all their travel time, guess what? They're going to spend more time with patients. They spend more time with patients, they're going to have better outcomes and better patient satisfaction, get paid more money. It's just, it's so simple, right? And, but I, you know, one of my observations is, in the lean world, uh, sometimes people get really hung up on what are the clinicians doing in that little box where they're doing stuff. That's irrelevant. <laughs> in the grand scope of how much cycle time and mistakes can happen, right. that has little to do with reality. It's all that delay and all yeah. that trans- movement and transportation. That's where we're killing people. And so, you know, the, the estimate is there's like three 747s a mm-hmm. day of passengers that crash. 
um, and burn because of some sort of medical mistake. And that's a day. Right. So, um, yeah, so I, I don't disagree with you that lean can have dramatic improvements in quality. It just Six Sigma is going to go after it directly. Uh, but I think you should do that after you've done lean. Well, I, I would I would agree with you there. Um, I think, and I and I've heard that feedback from a lot of hospitals out there who were introduced to Six Sigma in the late '90s by GE, um, and a lot of people saying, "Yeah, in hindsight, we should have uh, used Lean first and and taught that to everybody and um, yeah. started creating that culture, and then use Six Sigma as as appropriate and have a few specialists who can go." and roll up their sleeves and um, you know, solve more complicated problems with more complicated methods when appropriate. You know, I always say there's three types of problems. There's simple problems. And if they're simple, go fix them. Right. Right. <laughs> right? At the high end, there are complicated problems which might need more exotic tools. Sure. And, and, but the vast majority of problems are uncomplicated problems, but they might need some data analysis. They might need some, uh, some mapping of the process, you know, it, but it, it's not going to take forever, right? And we can solve gazillions of those. And then I also find that some of those complicated problems, you know, you don't need DOE. You don't need exotic right. stuff, right? Sometimes complicated problems are just a constellation of uncomplicated problems. As you pull those apart, you slowly discover that, um, hey, that complicated problem is gone. Sure. And so that's that's been kind of um, my approach. You know, how to, you know, People accuse me of trying to dumb down Lean and Six Sigma, and I'm not. I'm trying to simple it up. I'm trying to simple it up to the point where I can get everybody to go, oh, I can do that. Yeah, right. You know? well, even, the so, people, even the people that walk in the room go, I don't know anything about math and statistics, and, and they walk in the room and go, and they're starting to analyze their own data or draw their own value stream maps. I am thrilled with that, right? <laughs> I'm just yeah. thrilled with that. Well, so I wanted to, yeah, let's, let's touch on that and dive a little deeper, because you know, I think one of the points that you make really well in in your book is uh, you know about not going overboard uh, with six sigma um, I mean I think you know you mentioned control charts and you know, I when I worked at General Motors 20 years ago control charts were being done by the UAW assembly workers who barely had a high school education it's just you know facts sure. are facts and you know control charts are, are, are not that complicated uh, I, I I don't think Simplifying means dumbing down uh, at all. But can you share some examples of uh, maybe some other examples where people go overboard and, and some ways that, you know, keep it simple to the appropriate use of Six Sigma tools, the appropriate level of complexity? Sure. Um, well, you mentioned GE. I had a friend who actually was a trainer for GE and GE, and GE Healthcare. And she said, you know, we had three days of DOE training in, in there. And she said, why were we doing that? Because <laughs> right. they're never going to use that unless you're in medical research or something like that, right? And so one of the things that I observe is we try and teach people things they don't uh, need to solve problems they don't have. Um, so in healthcare, you need a much smaller uh, toolkit than you need in uh, to do things on a factory floor. You know, and, and I think ASC, the American Society for Quality got lost a little bit here uh, because, I mean, they were Deming Duran, they were manufacturing folk. And, um, you know, even Deming, I mean, I saw him many years ago, and he said, I have no idea why anybody put the word total <laughs> on, on total quality management. No, vital few, trivial many. <laughs> right, right. 
right? But somehow it got that thing, and, and through total quality management or Six Sigma, uh, people get this, gee, we have to go wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling, train a billion belts, and, and you know, tackle everything on the planet, and all that does is, is burn time and energy that could be spent on important things. And, and so very often I, I see that people are trying to do it everywhere rather than in the vital few places, or sometimes people, you know, because I have the QI macros, people send me their improvement projects, and I get to see some control charts and creator charts, but sometimes they're really disconnected. They, they don't know how to connect the dots, and sometimes I find that people have um, taken an improvement that they did through gut feel and trial and error, and then they try and retrofit data <laughs> but so that they can get their green belt or black belt. Mm-hmm. It's like, whoa. Wait, let your data lead you. You will be stunned by what it will do for you. So, you know, I think number one, um, don't try and teach them everything. You know, I I call them the magnificent seven tools, but, Mm -hmm. you know, value stream mapping and spaghetti diagramming are kinds of those kinds of things. Um, The secret sauce to finding the low-hanging fruit are pivot tables. And then you need a control chart, braid chart, histogram, fishbone diagram, um, countermeasures, and some action plans. You know, you don't need a gazillion tools. You know, do I need a project charter? Not if you got data that says you need to go do something, because it shouldn't take that long, right? I mean, most of my projects I got done in an afternoon with people. I helped one local uh, hospital save $5 million in denied insurance claims in an afternoon, right? And so <clears throat> they just implemented the, the changes in the process the next Monday morning. So these are the kinds of things, you know, I, I think we confuse them. Six Sigma project should take 14 weeks. No. <laughs> it should take as long as it takes. The solution is easy. The implementation may take longer, depending on what you need to do that. But mm-hmm. anyway, that was a long rant about that. But, yeah, that's right. you know, I, I think the Six Sigma world has done a disservice by overcomplicating what we're trying to do and what problems we're trying to solve. And, I mean, I think there's that classic uh, Six Sigma answer, lean people will say it too. If you ask, well, how long is a project supposed to take? I would say it depends. I mean, I think it depends on which of those three types of problems. It depends on uh, Mm -hmm. a a number of factors as opposed to always having a hard set rule, right? Right, right. I mean, when when I was at Honeywell, my my last manufacturing company, I went through, I mean, Honeywell was interesting. They did lean and Six Sigma and they claimed it was an integrated methodology, but you either went down a Six Sigma black belt track or a lean black belt track. It was very, it was very siloed. And uh, I, I would see, you know, people, colleagues of mine going down the Six Sigma track, you know, they, they were given, uh, you know, important business problem. You know, uh, the, 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 the department wasn't keeping up with customer demand. Uh, they were shorting. Uh, they were late to the customer. Inventory was too low. And, right. and you know, I'd hear my colleague, you know, at her desk talking about doing the multiple regression analysis. And, you know, I would talk to her and it was what you described. She said, well, to get certified, I have to use all of these X number of tools. I'm like, well, you know, Rome is burning and this business is really <laughs> suffering, you know, uh, or, you know, I, I call it 5Sing the deck chairs on the Titanic. I mean, I'm, right. I'm, I'm mixing exactly. methodologies and metaphors here. But, you know, I, I saw some of that happening, um, you know, back in the manufacturing world, which often just made me shake my head. Again, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with these methods or tools, but it's I think sometimes the guidance people are given or not given. 
Well, you know, the last 25 years we've been teaching uh, Lean and Six Sigma. And in the Six Sigma world, for sure, uh, we're still teaching it the same way we did 25 years ago. Well, why is that? Maybe there's a better, faster way to teach Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe there's an accelerated method. Maybe we can tailor this to the right thing. But I think uh, it's become one of those things where people are chasing uh, um, a belt so they can add it to their resume. You know, we've we've trained a gazillion belts. Why why aren't things any better? Right. I I, wait. You know, we've done that, but obviously it's not translating into action, and that's a gap. Yeah, I mean, I saw at Honeywell, they, they bragged about how many people had been certified as Six Sigma green belts, and there was a wall full of certificates. And I thought, well, that, that's not the meaningful metric, the number of certificates on the wall. It was, you know, if it was 500 certifications, how many projects had been done? About 502. I mean, it was just not translating into anything approaching ongoing continuous improvement. Yeah, well, you know, that's why I call it a money belt. You know, I, I have a little ribbon that I wear at these conferences that says money belt on them. People go, and it's green. It says, what? they say, what's that for? And I said, well, there are green belts and black belts and people who can actually save money using the tools of quality. That's a money belt, right? I'm a million-dollar money belt. I can save money, right? Um, but so many people, I'm just, I'm just floored, you know, that people aren't able to find ways to radically improve the, the business they're in. Right. The other thing, too, is I think humans, by their very nature, you know, neuroplasticity says once you've done something for a while, uh, you hardwire it. So you just do it that way forever. And so when we try and implement a change, it takes an enormous amount of energy to sustain the new change to the level where the, the brain unwires the old learning and wires in the new learning. Right. And there's just it takes a long time, and I think people underestimate that. I believe. So as we as we wrap up here, let's uh, let, let's talk a little bit about your book and, and the second edition, Lean Six Sigma for Hospitals. Can you tell you know a little bit of the story you know behind the book? Why why write a book, and and what's new in uh, the second edition? Sure. Well, you know, back in 1999, when Terror is Human came out. And the Joint Commission told all the hospitals, if you want to be an accredited hospital, thou shalt draw control charts. Uh, there was some listserv out there where nurses would ask, how do I draw a control chart? And a half a dozen nurses would respond and say, go buy a copy of the QI macros. Because uh, I'd launched them in 97, and they were creeping into some sort of product shape by 99. Um, but then because of that, then I got called in to work with various hospitals across the nation uh, so I've worked with, you know, the Veterans Administration and HCA and, and people all from coast to coast, north to south. And so as I, as I learned more about what was going on in healthcare and how to help these folks, and I do a one-day Lean Six Sigma healthcare training. I mean, that's yet yellow belt. If you learn all of that and just apply it, you'll be stunned. And then I force them all to bring their own data and their own products, I mean, projects to work on. And so we, we get to results pretty fast. Mm-hmm. And so out of that, I started to notice, well, what are the sort of things we need to work on? And so the first edition of the book uh, started to talk about what I was seeing and how to use Lean and Six Sigma in a, in a hospital environment. Um, and you, you could do it in, you know, a doctor's office, doesn't matter. Um, but really hospitals, because that was the big, 
big area. And then, since then, the second edition, I think there's a whole uh, new movement afoot, and that movement is zero harm. Right. Right? Zero harm. And somebody said to me the other day, well, isn't that in the Hippocratic Oath? And I said, well, if that's true, then why does the IHI say that one patient out of every two suffers some sort of preventable harm? Well, as, 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 as a quick aside, the phrase, first do no harm, is actually not in the Hippocratic Oath. It's just a different mm. historical healthcare expression. Right. Okay. So, good, thanks. Uh, but they bring that up, and I said, well, sure. that'd be nice if, if the data showed it was working, but it's not. Um, and so there's a number of hospitals, most notably Memorial Hermann down in Houston, that is adopting um, high reliability becoming a high-reliability organization, or an HRO. And so they're modeling things like uh, Disney theme parks and nuclear power plants where you can't fail. Right. That's not a good thing. And so they're applying those things, and their definition of a, of a high-reliability organization is lean, Six Sigma, and the missing link, change management. Right. And change management is how do we weave the results of these things into our hospitals and make sure that it sticks. And so that's what they're doing, and you know, they've done things where they have a, um, awards for people who've gone 12, 24 months, 36 months without a hospital-acquired infection, without a surgical complication, without a blood transfusion problem, right? And so they're, they're tracking that. And South Carolina as well, their whole state, they have 168 hospitals that have received a 12-month or better uh, zero harm award. So I think the new future is in zero harm. Right. And so, and, and the other thing, huh? It's a, yeah. It needs to be. Yeah. Well, if we do that, we're going to save a trillion dollars and be able to provide a lot more care to a lot more people. And then the other thing that has happened is we're finally seeing the payoff of some of these places like Virginia Mason, who just took TPS and ran with it, and and really made some dramatic improvements. You know, I'm, I love the story in, in the book, uh, Transforming, I think it's Transforming Healthcare, but the, they brought in the Japanese counselor, and the Japanese counselor looked at the map of the hospital and said, what are these rooms? And they said, well, those are waiting rooms. He said, who waits there? <laughs> Patient, they said. And he said, how long do they wait there? Oh, 45 minutes to an hour. And he says, aren't you ashamed? <laughs> aren't you ashamed? Yeah. And, and so Virginia Mason, when they redid their clinic, they, there is no wait room. You come in, you swipe your card, it gives you a rooming card, you go into the room and you see a doctor or a nurse in about under seven minutes or something like that. Very different model. Um, so yeah. th- these are the things that I'm seeing is there's a, a movement afoot now, the IHI has been meeting for 28 years. You'd think we'd be further than we are, right? You'd think well, we'd be further than we are. I mean, you can ask the same question. Why aren't you ashamed of all the harm that takes place? But people aren't ashamed of, of something they consider normal or unsolvable. or That's just the way it is. Um, I think that's well, I, part of the battle. I think, I, think, I think they hate that, but they don't know what to do about it. That's and I think our, our job in, in Lean and Six Sigma is to help them understand how do we solve the unsolvable problem and then figure that stuff out. You know, um, I talked to one woman, she was 
using our Pareto chart, but um, she did some analysis on patient falls, and it turns out most of the patient falls in their hospital occurred in uh, orthopedic ward, wards um, after surgery, men between the ages of 20 and 40. Hmm. Well, with that kind of data, guess what? You know, we, we can actively do things to monitor the 20 to 40-year-old guy who comes in and gets a knee fixed or something like that. Uh, so, you know, it may, it's not spread. I always say, you know, problems aren't spread all over like butter on bread. They're more like mold on bread. They cluster in places. <laughs> if, we could, if we could just go figure out where they're clustering and fix those, then we're not going to, you know, cause all these problems. And so I think if we can help healthcare see the opportunity and, and, and grab onto it and make it simple enough that they can go, oh, I can get people together for two hours to do a value stream map and figure out how we're going to change um, this organization in flight, right? Because you can't shut down a nursing unit to do right. a seven-day Kaizen event. You have to do it in, in flight. Um, so I think that that's our opportunity, and that's what I keep trying to do. That's what I was trying to do with the book. And, you know, people come up to me and they, they say, you know, we were dipped in the, the traditional lean and Six Sigma thing and and we read your book, and now we understand why we didn't understand it. <laughs> mm, yeah. You know, now we know what to do differently. Uh, so if nothing else, I hope that that's, that's done some good. And, and what's new in the second edition? Uh, well, second edition, I talk more about high reliability organizations, and I also have a variety of case studies because our exemplars, like Virginia Mason, uh, Herman Memorial, uh, Mayo Clinic, obviously, has always been doing things around innovation. Uh, Cleveland Clinic, the other uh, things that are coming out where the CEO has been in place for a decade, and they're pushing toward different models of care, right? Different ways of paying for things, like Geisinger uh, in Pennsylvania. They have a fixed price if you're going to have a knee replacement, and so it <clears throat> doesn't matter what goes on, it's, it's a flat fee. And because they, they do them at a flat fee, they get very good at it. And so there's different models. Medical tourism within the United States uh, is going to be a huge thing. And companies like um, Walmart and stuff say, well, you have to go to Geisinger to get yeah. your, your treatment because, number one, it's a fixed price, and they're cheap, and they're better than everybody else. So there's, we're seeing um, the payoffs start to come through, but I think it's just lower than it needs to be yeah well i hope people will go and uh and check it out um lean six sigma for hospitals second edition jay where can people find more information uh, about you your books qi macros other stuff online where where should they go yeah if you go to our our website qi macros.com that's qi m-a-c-r-o-s.com uh you can find out more about that i have a free Lean Six Sigma Yellow Belt Training with Healthcare Examples. Uh, and that address is lssyb.com for Lean Six Sigma Yellow Belt.com. And we just put up some new um, healthcare data guide examples. Uh, so we, we have lots of data in the software to, to help you do and understand wh what kind of chart do I need to do with this kind of thing. And we also have a lot of good um, control chart wizard tools that will help you pick charts. You know, I don't believe people should know formulas. I don't believe they should know a lot of this nonsense. The software will help you pick the right, the right chart, the right analysis. And so 
if you do that, then it makes it simple for people to stop learning all the nonsense and, and get on with solving real problems. Um, and if anybody wants to buy the book, it's cheaper on Amazon. Okay. <laughs> I can guarantee you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I buy them from there because it's cheaper than buying them from my <laughs> publisher. How's that? It's ludicrous. Well, uh, value and, and flow and everything in publishing, that's a, that's a whole different discussion. Every author I've talked to kind of grumbles about how... <laughs> how set in their ways publishing is uh, reminds us of other industries, but it's not just a healthcare problem being set. Well, in you know, it's, you know, in the phone company, I always described it as a hundred years of tradition uninterrupted by progress. <laughs> and we can say the same thing in healthcare, right? Atul Gawande, who's written a lot of good books on this, like the checklist manifesto. Um, you know, he said, you know, we're still using the same model we used a hundred years ago wake up, right? Uh, so, I, th you know, I think there are lots of really good opportunities out there. We just need people who want to drive forward and make that happen. And it can be somebody, I think, who's an informal leader, leader inside the organization, and they can go slay dragons, or they can wait for the leadership team to anoint them with the task of doing it. But everybody's busy. Everybody's too busy, yeah, I think. That. Yeah. And it comes back to the question, we're too busy to improve, uh, or are you too busy not to improve, or not improving is part of why they're so busy, but that's the one of my one, one of the guys I know, Rory Vaden, uh, he has a concept called ROTI, ROTI, which stands for Return on Time Invested. Mm -hmm. So if you could take and spend two hours a week, I, I ask everybody, spend two hours a week making some sort of improvement in your workspace. Even if you have to steal two hours, if that two hours saves you an hour or two the next week, forever, at some point the return on and time invested is going to be massive. Yeah. Right. So you need to put in, and and everybody can squeeze out an hour here or there. They just can, right? Uh, so I think there's people say I'm too busy. Well, no, you just haven't marked an hour, <laughs> but right. Yeah. So it, it does take a little time management to go get that done yeah all right well um thank you for joining us uh today jay our guest again has been uh jay arthur the book is lean six sigma for hospitals uh th thanks so much for joining us and, and sharing some of your stories and experiences and perspectives today really appreciate it hey thanks very much for having me on let me rant about one of my <laughs> my prime things in life i just turned 65 i got my medicare card i need health care to be better than it is <laughs> right <laughs> we all do different reasons and different ages and uh good luck uh good luck with all that hope you have a, a healthy and, and happy new year yeah back at you thanks for listening this has been the lean blog podcast for lean news and commentary updated daily visit www.leanblog.org if you have any questions or comments about this podcast email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com <laughs>